This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Tuesday, October 24th. On the pod today, the calls for a ceasefire grow more desperate as Israel intensifies its airstrikes on Gaza and vows not to let up. We speak to the World Health Organization, who says aid is now trickling in, but it's nowhere near enough. And we'll hear from a doctor in Gaza about the situation on the ground. Plus, the federal court has approved a landmark $23 billion First Nations Child Welfare Agreement. Advocate Cindy Blackstock and Minister of Indigenous Services Patty Haidu join us to discuss the approval. We begin our coverage in Israel, where a grandmother is safe and recounting that day Hamas gunmen kidnapped her and took her hostage. The CBC's Susan Ormiston joins us now from Jerusalem. So, Susan, what more did we learn from this hostage today? A lot. An extraordinary news conference. I mean, she basically gave us the detail, gruesome detail, of how she was abducted from this kibbutz, an 85-year-old woman thrown over the side of a motorcycle and transported across the, the fields to Gaza. She said they were beaten, beating her with sticks. They didn't break her ribs, she said, but she was in a lot of pain. When she got to Gaza, though, she was in a labyrinth, a spider web, she called it, of underground tunnels. We've heard quite a bit about those. And about 25 hostages were in a group in a large room underground. She said they had one meal a day, the same as her captors, pita, with white cheese and cucumbers. That's what she ate. And they said, she said that they were obviously clearly planning this for some time. They had supplies for the women. Feminine products, also conditioner and shampoo for their hair. So this wasn't a, a surprise to them. They they had been planning a space for hostages. Sadly, her husband was also abducted, David, and he is still captive inside Gaza, along with more than 200 others, a huge number of hostages, which are becoming quite a bargaining chip by Hamas, whether they'll release them or keep them. And a real problem for many governments, including the Israeli government, who are pressuring, trying to get those hostages released before any ground incursion into this war. So a very difficult um, situation developing and growing by the day, I'd say. Okay, uh, speaking of the ground invasion or the incursion, you were given rare access today to an Israeli Defense Forces operating base close to the Gaza border. So can you share some of what you saw with us? Well, David, we've been hearing so much about the Israeli Defense Forces, the many reservists who are on that southern border, dug in, waiting for their orders. So we wanted to go and verify that ourselves. We asked the IDF for access to one of those areas, and we spoke to a commander, an Israeli-American, Major Stern, and asked him several things about... uh, what they were doing in that location and when possibly they may go in. Here's a little bit of what we saw and what he told us. We're in southern Israel, about a kilometer from the fence that separates Israel and Gaza. And as you can see, the Israeli defense forces are dug in here. We're told they are geared up. There are over a thousand soldiers here and they are ready to go, just waiting for orders. This is pretty consistent of what we're seeing along the southern part of Israel now. And the military has said that they will be going into Gaza 
at the time when the right conditions exist. No one knows exactly what that timing is, and we're hearing now that this conflict could take months. It's the good old military hurry, hurry, and wait. We're waiting for orders. We're preparing ourselves. We've already gathered the troops, and we're armed and ready to go. Are you involved in any way in the um, limited raids that the military has told us about this weekend into Gaza? Yeah. I think that any one of our the actions that we're going to be taking tonight and in the next few weeks um, all has to do with our main objective of eliminating Hamas. The people here, the soldiers, all reservists, say that they are ready and they are ready to stay until their mission is done. So we were pretty close to that fence, which effectively is the border between uh, Gaza and Israel. And as you heard, they simply have to wait for a political decision, which no one knows when that will come. There is pressure on uh, Benjamin Netanyahu here to delay that ground incursion, to get those hostages out, and to get humanitarian aid in. Today, no trucks got into Gaza from the Egyptian side. You know there's been a lot of wrangling and negotiations about that, and they were not allowed through. And tomorrow, the UN is saying they will run out of fuel needed to desalinate the water in Gaza and also critical to run those generators for the hospitals. All right, Susan, thank you very much. That's the CBC's Susan Ormiston in Jerusalem. The United Nations Security Council met today as the situation in Gaza grows more dire. Humanitarian organizations say the aid that is now finally entering Gaza from Egypt is a drop in the bucket, and the UN's Secretary General agrees. To ease epic suffering, make the delivery of aid easier and safer, and facilitate the release of hostages, I reiterate my appeal for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. We've reached Tarek Jasarevich from the World Health Organization in Cairo. Tarek, thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much, David. So we've seen some aid starting to get into Gaza, though it is admittedly a fraction of what is needed. How much is it helping and how far is, are the medical supplies able to get into this theater of war? Uh, as you say, uh, that's nearly not enough uh, to even start addressing the medical needs right now in Gaza. We only had four trucks uh, uh, with uh, some uh, trauma kits, uh, also medicines for chronic diseases and some general medical material. But uh, uh, the needs uh, in, in, in Gaza are huge. And as you, as you say, we are simply unable to deliver uh, any medical supplies to North uh, where there are hospitals with thousands of patients and where the situation is getting desperate. Well, what's the situation on fuel? Uh, the Israeli Defense Forces say they won't allow fuel into the territory be because it could be diverted to Hamas uh, for use in the war effort. But the World Health Organization has been able to get some in. What, what can you tell me about that, sir? Well, hospitals simply cannot run without electricity. You cannot do surgery. Uh, you cannot uh, not see your patients. And there are all sorts of equipment that depends on electricity, such as incubators, uh, such as uh, ventilators, uh, and, and, and people who need, for example, uh, renal uh, dialysis. So, so these people uh, are really at the edge, and they need fuel so they can uh, keep receiving life support. Uh, fuel is uh, equally important as clean water and medical supplies. So this is why uh, we are 
calling and we kept calling uh, in past uh, uh, two weeks for unimpeded uh, and sustained and safe access. Right now, the problem is that we don't have security guarantees uh, to move uh, supplies uh, uh, to, 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 no- to hospitals in the north. So who do you need those security guarantees from? Is it from Hamas? Is it from the IDF? Uh, who, who do you need to assure your safety so you can get medical supplies to the hospitals in northern Gaza? Well, we are basically uh, asking for deconfliction. So basically, there is a mechanism that there is a process that is used in similar situation where all parties in the conflict uh, know where the uh, at what time the humanitarian aid is uh, is uh, uh, is coming. And simply, we are not receiving uh, those guarantees. Uh, and and this is something we cannot really uh, have uh, uh, people of the uh, Palestinian Red Crescent or our own staff uh, uh, putting in danger. We need uh, that, that safe passage. Okay, so you were able to get, with the help of the uh, UNRWA, uh, about 34,000 of liters of fuel into southern Gaza to get to four major hospitals there. 34,000 liters sounds like a lot of fuel to me, but that's only enough to keep the hospitals and ambulances running for about a day. Is that the situation there right now, sir? That's correct. I mean, hospitals do require a, a big number uh, of, of big quantities of fuel uh, because uh, you need those generators uh, to, to, to be running uh, uh, constantly because patients are coming in. Lots of patients uh, have trauma injuries and they need surgical, uh, uh, surgical interventions. Uh, so we really need this sustained uh, uh, access because the situation is, is really will become uh, catastrophic and as, uh, 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 and as people uh, and health workers in the north especially are saying uh, that, uh, that uh, lots of people may uh, lose uh, their their lives. Uh, uh, one of the hospitals in the north, in the Indonesian uh, hospital, uh, stopped some uh, critical services uh, simply because of uh, lack of fuel. At Al Shifa Hospital, they are running way beyond the, their capacity at 150 percent capacity. So this is something that uh, that it's really no health worker in a, in a world should be put in this situation, uh, 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 really battling for lives. Uh, of their patients, while at the same time uh, uh, being uh, being at the threat of being bombarded uh, and not having a basic uh, basic conditions to, to do their job. I, I've just spoken uh, recently with Dr. Ghassan Abu Sita, who's at Al Shifa Hospital in in northern Gaza. Uh, he says that's a seven hundred bed hospital. They right now right now they have about eighteen hundred, seventeen hundred, eighteen hundred patients. One hundred and fifty of them are on ventilators, and the entire compound has just become almost like a refugee camp, a shanty town of people seeking shelter uh, by proximity to a hospital from the bombardment. But he said if they don't get fuel supplies to keep those critical pieces of equipment you've mentioned running, the hospital is going to become a mass grave because the people on the ventilators and in the incubators are just going to die. What goes through your mind when, when you hear firsthand reports like that? David, uh, what, can, uh, what can one think about, about this, how, how, how it is possible that in 2023 we are in a situation uh, where where we are not in a position to bring supplies that we have just a few kilometers we have our supplies uh, at, the, at the Rafa crossing point and that we are not able to bring uh, to those who are desperately uh, needing so so I, I i think we really have to uh, uh, at least uh, demand from everyone who has uh, uh, power to to make decisions or at least to influence those who have power uh, to, to decide to provide security guarantees and to let uh, uh, let uh, fuel 
clean water and medical supplies and other supplies uh, to get to people of Gaza. You say you can't get security guarantees for the delivery of aid. Uh, there also appears to be issues about the security of health facilities in both Gaza and in the West Bank. Now, we've spoken to the Israel Defense Forces multiple times on this show, and they say they do not deliberately target hospitals. But sometimes there's a Hamas operation or a militant operation or a terrorist organization, as they say, in proximity that puts those facilities at risk. Your organization is saying there have been a 168 attacks on health facilities since October the 7th, 72 in Gaza, 96 in the West Bank, and 491 people are dead as a result. Help me understand this disconnect. What is the reality with health facilities in Gaza right now in terms of how they're being, if not targeted, struck by the military operation? Well, first of all, uh, uh, it's important to remind that the protection of health workers and health facilities and health care is, uh, uh, is enshrined in international humanitarian law. So all parties to the conflict has obligation to respect the international humanitarian law and to protect. Hospitals should never be a target. Hospitals should be safe uh, haven for doctors and patients to get the care uh, they need. Uh, we at WHO, we don't uh, uh, have a mandate nor expertise to, 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 to determine who has done what with what weapon. But what we do is we record that, uh, that uh, uh, health care, whether it's patients, ambulances, hospitals, health centers, have been, uh, uh, have been uh, hit, uh, uh, that health care uh, has been prevented or obstructed. Uh, and, and unfortunately, uh, there are a number of health workers who already died on duty. Just to be uh, clear, uh, there were uh, attacks on health care uh, in Israel too uh, uh, when, uh, uh, when the, the crisis has started with horrible attacks uh, of, of Hamas. So uh, uh, really, at the end of the day, when, when you think about it, what we need is beyond sustained access, we need end of hostilities. Even if we are able to bring fuel, medical supplies, as long as people are being bombed, there would be casualties. So, so we, we are appealing alongside all the other humanitarian uh, uh, colleagues uh, to, to find a way to, to stop this madness. Just as a final point on, on that, Tarek, um, there have been calls internationally for a ceasefire to set up a humanitarian corridor. The big Western allies of Israel, including Canada, are not ready to back that at the government level. They, they say that will allow Hamas to reorganize, regroup, and potentially resupply. What, what situation, what, what's your level of optimism that, that, that a proper humanitarian corridor and continuous flow of aid uh, can be set up when it seems pretty clear that Israel and, and its big backers in the West from the U.S. on down uh, aren't, aren't prepared to do that? Well, we hope, like any normal human being, that humanity will prevail, that uh, that people on both sides uh, will get to the position to live a normal life in a safe conditions with access to health care and all the other services. Right now, what's happening in Gaza is that millions of people are desperately in need of everything, including security, but also in, in, in need of everything else. And we as a humanitarian organizations. We are ready to provide that, but we need to be led to do it. Tarek Jasarovic with the World Health Organization. Thank you for joining us from Cairo today. We appreciate your time. Thank you.
Okay, since we did that interview, Canada and other Western countries have supported the idea of humanitarian pauses, temporary uh, cessation of hostilities in Gaza to allow humanitarian aid to get into the area, but they still do not support a full ceasefire. And as all of this continues, fears persist that Israel's war on Hamas could widen into a broader conflict in the Middle East. And today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken issued a stark warning to Iran. The United States does not seek conflict with Iran. We do not want this war to widen. But if Iran or its proxies attack U.S. personnel anywhere, make no mistake, we will defend our people, we will defend our security swiftly and decisively. As Israel escalates its airstrikes on Gaza, the number of casualties soars. Nearly 5,800 people have been killed in Gaza, as reported by the Hamas-run health ministry. About half of them, children. We're going to show you some footage from today, and first, a warning. It contains disturbing images. This is the scene outside a hospital in southern Gaza. People can be seen racing wounded young children inside, carrying them in their arms or on stretchers. A British-Palestinian doctor, Ghassan Abu Sita, went to Gaza to help victims right after the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. He's been working at different hospitals, including Gaza's main medical complex, Al-Shifa Hospital. Dr. Abu Sita is witnessing it all while working in Gaza, and he joins me now. So, Doctor, we, we know you've been working at multiple hospitals inside Gaza throughout this. Uh, where are you right now, and, and what is the situation like there? I'm currently at Shifa Hospital, which is Gaza's largest hospital. The situation here is absolutely dire. The hospital used to have a bed capacity of a maximum of 700. I think we have now around 1,700 to 1,800 wounded patients who we have to put in corridors on the floors, in the wards, um, in the emergency department on mattresses on the floor. Um, we have over 150 uh, uh, intubated, ventilated, critically ill uh, wounded uh, patients. Uh, and the hospital grounds itself has turned into a... a a refugee camp for the internally displaced. There are tens of thousands of families that are staying in the hospital compound ground, kind of creating a, a, a public health catastrophe waiting to happen. Um, and everything around us is falling apart. Um, yesterday, the biggest hospital in the northern part of Gaza ran out of fuel. And so um, with that goes the electricity and the generator. And we're expecting in a matter of days a similar thing to happen to us. So on that issue of fuel and electricity, sir, we've heard reports coming out of Gaza that hospitals have had to turn off incubators, have had to turn off ventilators. Are you hearing that because of the lack of electricity? And, and, and do you think you're going to face that situation at the hospital you're at? Absolutely. If the hospital, if, the ho if there's no electricity, then you can't run the ventilators and you can't run the incubators and you can't run the anesthetic machines. And a hospital the size of, of the Shifa Hospital with the kind of severely uh, uh, injured patient that it has, without electricity, this hospital will just turn into a mass grave. Uh, these people will die, and there's no doubt in my mind. 
Some aid was allowed in through the southern access point at Rafah over the last couple of days. I know it's only a fraction of what typically goes into Gaza. Has any of that made its way to your hospital? We're hearing reports that it's difficult to get the aid into northern Gaza. It's tokenistic. I mean, when you're looking at 14, 15 trucks for 16, 15, 16,000 wounded and, and two and a quarter million people, it's just tokenistic. It's not even going to be to, to make a palpable uh, difference uh, to the outcome of, of a lot of these injuries. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's very little at the moment that is making a difference that's coming in. Uh, and certainly none of it is making it all the way up to here. But even if it does, 14 trucks is nothing compared to what is needed. What is needed is a continuous humanitarian corridor that allows us to evacuate the wounded, to bring in the kind of supplies that we need, the fuel that we need, continue working. And we need a ceasefire uh, so that we can, we can treat the patients that we have. You, you say there's about 1,800 people in the hospital, patients in the hospital, that has capacity for 700, 150 of those on ventilators, and thousands of others seeking refuge in and around the hospital. Uh, as I understand it, sir, you're in the part of Gaza that the Israel Defense Forces is suggesting be evacuated. Uh, I realize you can't move that number of patients. Um, what, what choices do you think you and the other medical staff there are, are going to have to make in, in the coming days? The targeting of hospitals is a war crime. Making it by appointment, calling beforehand and saying we're going to target it, makes it less of a war crime, does not make it less of a war crime. I mean, the, the idea is that somehow uh, calling someone up and telling them you're going to commit crime against them makes it less of a problem is, 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 is beyond me. One, we will not leave because this is a vital structure protected by international humanitarian law. Two, there's no possibility of moving this number of critically wounded patients, even if we had decided. But most importantly, rather than get into the discussion about moving what, there is health facilities need to be uh, protected, and they are protected under international law. Getting into a kind of conversation about how do you evacuate people is the wrong kind of conversation. Why? I mean, this is not a tsunami. This is a man-made catastrophe. Uh, the decision to attack people. Uh, doctor, we're just having some issues with the connection. I, I hope you can still hear me. I, we appreciate it's difficult to reach people in Gaza under these circumstances. Uh, I, I take your point that, that hospitals and health facilities are protected under international law. Um, when we speak with the Israeli military, they argue that Hamas is using these facilities um, as operational bases and in effect using you and, and the patients as human shields. Is there a Hamas presence in that hospital in any way or near that hospital in any way that that potentially puts the facility in danger there is this is if you see this hospital it's turned into a shanty town of displaced people milling around wounded uh, injured patients on the ground uh, uh, but you know i'm old enough to remember that this is the same discourse that was used to justify the bombardment during the siege of beirut in 1982 that the PLO was doing that. And, you know, this is the same narrative to try to find a kind of uh, 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 excuse 
and exceptionalism, the idea of Israeli exceptionalism, that, you know, we know that it's international uh, uh, law that forbids attacking hospitals, Israeli exceptionalism should allow us to start talking about what we consider to be a war crime. Okay, we lost connection with Dr. Ghassan Abusita near the end of that interview. As you can imagine, it is difficult to reach people in Gaza at this time. But the doctor did hear my last question, and he sent his response through a voice note. I asked him how his family back home in London is dealing with the situation he finds himself in. Here's his answer. I tried to um, at least call my wife um, uh, once a day if the Internet is permitting. Otherwise, I send, send uh, audio messages on WhatsApp. Um, I try to send audio messages uh, whenever there is internet uh, to the boys just to make sure that they hear my voice. At the moment I don't even know most of the time what day it is. I get up, we see the patients, we go to the operating room, we operate all night, I wait for the last patient around 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock to leave the operating room. I clean one of the uh, trolley beds in the recovery area of the operating room. I go to bed. I get up around six or seven. I, unless we're woken up at night, uh, I get up, I have a shower and we start all over again. Canada's Defense Minister Bill Blair had harsh words for Hamas today. I have no expectation that a terrorist organization would respect international law or any call for ceasefire. Hamas has to be um, eliminated as a threat, not, not just to Israel, but to the world. The Prime Minister later echoed Minister Blair's comments on Hamas, but also said Canada would support the idea of humanitarian pauses in fighting to get aid into Gaza. We're engaged closely with our allies on trying to build humanitarian corridors, get aid in, get civilians and foreign nationals out of Gaza. I think there's a lot of conversations going on now about the need for humanitarian pauses, and I think that's something that Canada could all right, so lots to discuss there for the power panel. Michelle Cadario is with Vanguard Strategy. She's the CEO there. Uh, Gary Keller is vice president at Strategy Corp. Francoise Boivin is a former NDP MP and a political commentator. And the CBC's Jason Markasoff joins me. Uh, Michelle, a, a couple of things there uh, from the government. Uh, Bill Blair in saying flatly Hamas must be eliminated, uh, which is a bit stronger uh, than some of the language you've seen to date. But also Canada, which is not endorsing a ceasefire, pushing for the idea of humanitarian pauses so that aid can go in in between the fighting. What's your sense on where the government is on this right now? Well, I think the government, um, you know, after um, being a little slow in terms of reacting to uh, the news about the, the hospital, um, now needs to be on sure footing. They need to be decisive. They need to be clear. Um, and they need to be unequivocal in their um, denouncement of Hamas. Uh, in their stand behind Israel and its right to defend itself. But equally so, they have to express concern and that growing international concern about getting foreign nationals out of, uh, out of uh, the West Bank, out of Gaza. Um, there's Canadians there. There's, there are um, uh, Canadian hostages as well. And it is a growing humanitarian aid crisis. And, you know, there has to be some longer-term thinking about what is this going to, to become? And I think that Canada's voice um, needs to be thoughtful. Um, and, uh, and when they speak, it, it, they can't be um, uh, questioning 
uh, things or leaving things open to interpretation. They need to be strong and they need to be firm. Yes, and, and Gary, they, they've had some issues there with things being left open to interpretation in the early days of this. Uh, I should say that we just got a statement from the Conservatives in the last half hour or so saying they support the idea of humanitarian pauses as well. Uh, where, where do you think Canada is on this one, Gary? When I woke up this morning, uh, I wasn't a, a betting man to say that the phrase humanitarian pauses or temporary pauses is going to be mm. the catchword of the day. But but here we are. It seems to be have been caught on not just with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and the government and the Conservatives. You know, uh, Anthony Blinken has been using it uh, as well today at the United Nations and elsewhere. Uh, and so uh, really this idea of uh, a humanitarian or temporary pause versus a ceasefire uh, I think is is probably where everybody uh, in either government or in the, in the Conservative Party feels they have uh, sure footing. Uh, that's a very different debate versus a, uh, a temporary pause versus a ceasefire, which mm-hmm. also has a loaded t- terminology around it and tends to equate, you know, the state of Israel, uh, a democratic state with obvious, you know, like every state has its flaws with uh, a, a terrorist organization uh, like Hamas. So we've seen the strong statements from Bill Blair today. I, I was pleasantly surprised to see that. We've seen in the past um, uh, Bob Ray, the Canadian ambassador of the United Nations, use similar language. But we haven't seen that language necessarily across the government, and there has been some wiggle room. And when a government doesn't speak with one voice, it not only opens up things for interpretation domestically at home, but with our international partners right. as well. And so when we had you know, the prime minister saying one thing, the uh, foreign minister saying slightly different words, the ambassador of the United Nations saying different, and 23 liberal MPs calling for a ceasefire, including parliamentary secretaries who are essentially an arm of the government, it does leave uh, some concern open for the kind of uh, response with our with our allies. And I think it was summed up nicely by the Israeli ambassador to Canada, who said, finally, the government acknowledged that uh, the intelligence was uh, proving that there was not an Israeli attack on that hospital. Yeah, and and Francoise, uh, on, on Gary's point about the 23 liberals who signed the letter, the public divide on this issue goes right through the heart of the Liberal caucus, right? And and I, mm-hmm. I, I, after uh, the Prime Minister's scrum today, it was made very clear to me by an official I spoke with that they're talking about humanitarian pauses, plural. So, like, let's stop the fighting for 24 hours, get some aid in, and then it can resume, and then we'll stop it again. Like, not one long pause, which could be constituted or considered a ceasefire, which is what the New Democrats are calling for. So how does this difference of views potentially play out uh, in, in the Parliament going forward? I think it, uh, it's, it's an expression that probably rallies uh, the vast majority, if not the totality. Some people might want this whole... Uh, this whole war to stop at some point in time. And I think as human beings, we all wish that it will happen at a uh, not too di- in a not too distant a future. But if it's just a semantic, because for me, it was always if you want to have that uh, humane ca- corridor to to help those who have nothing to do with the conflict who are innocent victim. Well, you need to cease fire, be it temporary, uh, because we know the uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the end end game for 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 Israel versus Hamas and uh, rightfully so, but uh, I, I think this type of expression of humanitarian I don't know who found the expression of uh, of uh, this uh, humanitarian uh, pause. Uh, explains exactly what needs to be done at this point in time. But 
there's still some big question mark. Uh, will Hamas play 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 nice in 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 that uh, cry from uh, from uh, from the world? Um, that remains to be seen. What will happen with the hostages? Um, do we forget about them? Um, my heart breaks just thinking uh, of that story of that uh, 85-year-old that was uh, telling the story today. And, and there's 199 more cases like that right now. So how do you get that humanitarian, temporary humanitarian pause um, in, in that context? There's still a lot to be resolved. Yeah, and Jason, they're trying to find a position, it seems, uh, with the government, and maybe it came from Anthony Blinken when he spoke at the Security Council today, because it all seemed to catch fire after that, uh, where they respect Israel's right to self-defense and, and only allow short windows for aid to get in that's already there at Rafa and maybe limit the capacity of Hamas, which Canada has designated as a terrorist organization, to do any kind of resupply and regrouping. Uh, what's, your, what's your sense on where this has landed? There, there's probably a sense uh, among many liberals that uh, they're, they're relieved to be in line uh, with the United States. And it's also very relieved mm-hmm. to be that the conservatives have begun echoing their, uh, their voices, mm-hmm. that there's not this, that they're not stuck, this awkward stuck in the middle of a group that's uh, going to be, uh, you know, um, uh, going much more hard and much more in line with what, uh, what you know, some people in Israel who are more hawkish uh, may want, more people in the Jewish Canadian uh, community uh, want and don't want to let up on any uh, humanitarian pauses. Um, so they're probably happy with that. And uh, look, in terms of the ceasefire, going back to what um, Francoise just said, I think there are so many people um, out there who hear what, uh, what that hostage said um, the ordeals that she experienced, uh, and say a ceasefire with the people who did that. Um, It'll never happen. No, it never happened. And just how, how, how could it happen? There would be some people who just, exactly. you know, this is not, as, as Gary said, this is not a state actor. Um, you know, this, uh, I, I don't know if there were people who were <clears throat> talking about a ceasefire with, uh, with ISIS in the past. Um, look, I understand and I appreciate and there's a long Canadian tradition of not wanting fighting, not wanting war. Um, this is uh, not, uh, not, you know, this traditional state over state on state um, situation. Um, there's, uh, you know, it's controversial uh, in the international community that uh, Bibi Netanyahu says that the Palestinian Authority, uh, which rules the West Bank, is uh, no partner for peace. Um, I don't think there are many people out there anywhere who argue that Hamas is a partner yeah. for peace or ceasefire. No, uh, uh, certainly that that is true. I mean, uh, it has uh, genocidal principles in its founding articles, calling for the elimination of, of all Jews. So, I, I mean, it's how do you have a dialogue with that, right? Um, but you know, Michelle, uh, on on the issue you mentioned off the top uh, about the, the, what what is criticized uh, by a lot of groups in Canada as a misstep by the government on the bombing, uh, the exp- the blast, the explosion outside the hospital in Gaza, the, the intelligence from Israel and the United States has concluded it wasn't Israel. And since then, the UK, France, and Canada have come on board. I spoke to Bill Blair about that last night, and and he gave me the impression in the interview that they're going to take their time to assess all of these things, because there is a lot of chaos and noise and uncertainty in a situation like this. And is that the wrong thing for a country like Canada to do? We have seen issues with US intelligence in the past. So is it wrong to take a pause and just assess it before rushing to pick a side in moments like that? 
No, I don't think it's wrong at all. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not that long in history where, um, you know, the, the world followed U.S. intelligence about Saddam Hussein um, and, uh, and you know, some of the hidden caches of, uh, of weapons that he had that never really bore fruit. So, you know, I think that it's prudent. We're an independent country. Um, we should get the information and we should have eyes on it, but we need to do it in a prompt way as quickly as we can. Um, and we can't be um, misconstrued in the time gap that it takes while we are, you know, kind of discerning what the actual information is and coming to our own conclusion. Um, and so I think that that is uh, probably a lesson learned within, hopefully within government. Um, and it's just too delicate of a situation. Uh, and uh, there are just too many voices on this right now that we absolutely have to be sure of ourselves. And, but we do have to be um, kind of prompt in our, uh, in our responses. So, so Gary, uh, you, know, you, you were chief of staff to a minister of foreign affairs. Uh, how, how do you manage moments like that going forward? You know, when you are presented with a highly controversial moment, uh, and it's, you have intelligence, which, as we know, is not evidence for our foreign interference coverage earlier in the year, but a turbocharged political environment domestically and geopolitically looking for you to take a side as quickly as you can. Yeah, I mean, that is always the challenge is 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 the reality of getting good information and the time time lag to make a good decision. Now, in this case, you know, the prime minister and, and members of parliament were very quick to judge the claims by Hamas that it bombed, uh, that Israel had bombed uh, a hospital uh, very, very quickly. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, well, governments need to take time to analyze the situation. But the statements coming from the government of Canada, I mean, Hamas got the benefit of the doubt, frankly, from the government of Canada more than the state of Israel and some of our allies did. And so I think that is really a bit of a stain on our record here. By all means, get your information and do the intel. Yeah. But I mean, goodness sakes, for how long did it take to, to do that? To me, it's, it seemed like they were looking under every stone and every rock when all of our sort of Five, Eye val five Eyes allies plus French plus others were saying, yeah, no, sorry. This, this, this was this was a, a self-inflicted attack uh, by Hamas or by PIJ. Uh, I think it's a real black mark on how the government handled this, especially because they were so quick to come out and uh, raise judgment on Israel, uh, basically based on claims from Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Yeah, and, and Francis, I, I'm not picking up for the government here, but I, I'm throwing some shade on my profession because the world journalistic community kind of went there too, and that's led to some hard conversations in news organizations uh, around the world in terms of taking the time to get it right rather than rushing at the speed of social media. Uh, just your thoughts on how the government should handle moments like this uh, going forward. Well, I might not be as critical as my colleagues on the uh, government reaction because I was on French TV the day that I, that happened. And, 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 and we heard uh, President Biden uh, uh, right beside Netanyahu. And, and he didn't say, we believe it's Hamas. He said the evidence seems to appear to be, there was so many conditional there. So he was mm. still keeping a little door open. As for our prime minister... I never heard that he blamed directly Israel. I know that for not blaming Hamas or laying the blame right away on Hamas foot, 
which for a lot of people, we kind of suspected that, that it was a, uh, something like that that happened, but we still had no evidence. Maybe it's my, the lawyer inside of me. I want to see some evidence. So a bit like Michelle, I'm happy to see my government take time. If they take time to review evidence and to make sure that the balance of prob- probability uh, lies a certain way before they say something stupid that we will regret later on, like weapons of mass destruction a certain time uh, 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 decades ago. I mean, I appreciate that. If they hesitate because they're wishy-washy and they don't want to displease one side versus the other, then they're not governing. But I didn't put it that way because I figured after they had time to review and it was pretty swift still. I just found that whole time of 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 saying the government said this and blame Israel. I I didn't I didn't hear a blame towards Israel. I heard peep nothing from right. the government other than we we feel for the victims of the hospital bombing and and that's what we all felt. Now we know it's Hamas to be to be blamed for it and and we move along. It still doesn't free two hundred hostages and it still doesn't resolve the fact that Hamas wants to eradicate uh, uh, Jewish in, in, in the area. Right. So, and, and Jason, just uh, going to give you the last word on this, but I should point out that while Canada was criticized by waiting until Saturday to declare it wasn't Israel, the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, didn't do it until Monday. And, uh, and, and, you know, maybe that's because he's not in the U.S. media ecosystem. And, the, you know, you can have a bit more patience in the U.K. Uh, uh, Jason, your, your final thoughts on this one. There were people, what was this, a Saturday morning that we first, uh, a few weeks ago, got, got news of this. Uh, there were people um, on Twitter loudly uh, condemning certain politicians, I believe it was struck me as saying, for not having a, a response out uh, within three hours. Uh, people okay. are expecting uh, rapid action. I would say, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it, it, I, unless I was mistaken, um, there was some remark by uh, Jolie and Trudeau about heinous acts of crimes. That suggests some, somebody did something as opposed to uh, something happening to uh, somebody. So I would think there might be some some distinction there. And look, I, in terms of journalism, uh, yeah, there were a lot of organizations um, that did not cover themselves in glory in this. Uh, New York Times, to its credit, put out quite a lengthy explanation of what happened, what went wrong. And um, I, I wonder if uh, what something like that from the government of Canada might look like. Uh, not that they would do that, that'd be, be politically damaging and self-effacing, um, but I wonder what that would look like if uh, they were to do something like that. Okay, we'll, don't we'll, hold your breath. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave the audience here with that thought exercise. Uh, thank you very much, uh, gang. Uh, some of you staying up late for us today: Jason Marcusoff, Francois Boivin, Gary Keller, and Michelle Cadario. Thanks so much. Great. The federal court has approved the largest class action settlement in Canadian history today. More than $23 billion for First Nations children and families racially discriminated against by Ottawa. The federal government agreed to pay after a human rights tribunal found it chronically underfunded First Nations child and family services. As Olivia Stefanovic reports, the decision could be life-changing. Emotion broke out in the courtroom after a federal court judge approved more than $23 billion in compensation. I'm overwhelmed, speechless. I never thought that judge would render a decision today. I will be issuing an order approving the final settlement agreement. Zacchaeus Trout and his wife waited years for this moment. 
a small measure of justice for their children, Sinead and Jacob Trout. Ottawa failed to provide proper health support for their rare neurological disorder. Sinead and Jacob both died before the age of 10. Their names will be in the history books. It's a history that's been made here today. I'm kind of overwhelmed. Uh, I wish my mom was here, Marina, Marina Beadle. After she died, Jonathan Miwoski told the court he continued his mother's fight against the federal government to get supports for his brother, Jeremy. I hope this will keep Jeremy inside his home and keep him loved and keep him with the people that he needs to be with. The court also heard from young people ripped away from their families and nations in such high numbers there are more kids in care now than at the height of residential schools. I don't fit in with my adoptive family. I also don't fit in with my home community. But heartbreakingly, I know that I'm actually not alone. This is a lesson for the country. The Indigenous Services Minister says she hopes the decision leads to change. But one of the lead lawyers in the case says there are more lawsuits pending against Ottawa. $23.34 billion is being paid to compensate this class because that's the extent of the harm that was caused. Uh, should that cause a government to change its ways, to change its attitudes? I would hope so. More than 300,000 First Nations people are eligible for compensation. They're expected to begin receiving tens of thousands of dollars each next year. Olivia Stefanovic, CBC News, Ottawa. For more on this historic settlement agreement, we turn now to the First Nations children's advocate who started the battle for federal compensation all the way back in 2007. Cindy Blackstock is executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. She joins us from Toronto. Cindy Blackstock, thanks for joining us today. No, thanks for having me. I wonder if I could just get your reaction to this. It seemed like it was done, then it wasn't, and now it appears this deal is finally done. How does it feel to have this signed off on by the judge? Well, it's a... It's a it's a relief, but it, I also find myself thinking about the thousands of children, youth, and families who are hurt by Canada's discrimination, who will never get their childhoods back. And that's why it is so important that we end the discrimination and prevent it from happening again, because no amount of compensation ever gets you your family back. Yes, uh, that, that is a, a true point. I, I want to explore that in just a second, but just a, a little bit more, if, if I can, on, on the mechanics of how this settlement is going to work. $23 billion, it's $40,000 per person, as I understand it. Cindy, uh, how quickly will they see that money? What's the distribution process going to be there? It's a good question. So it's $40,000 for anyone who would have been entitled under the King Human Rights Tribunal orders and for other persons because it goes back before the tribunal had jurisdiction between 1991 and 2005. The, the timing of how the money flows and really super important, the supports that are going to be available to uh, children, youth and families who are receiving that compensation, that's all going to be documented in something called a distribution protocol. And uh, that's uh, going to be filed with the court, uh, likely in early next year by the Class Action Council. So we'll all have to watch for that. And that'll lay out the timing of when the compensation will be released. Okay, uh, you mentioned supports, and I'm glad you did, because that's something I, I wanted to, to ask about. Because, uh, And I ask this question with no judgment, uh, because I, I've done stories on people who are residential school survivors and have gotten cash settlements who are in a very difficult 
place in their lives because of everything that happened to them. And the money perhaps wasn't as helpful as it could have been because of those circumstances. So, so what are you looking at there in terms of supports? What do you think is needed uh, to make sure uh, th this money goes to very good use for these people? Well, the Caring Society's position is that it's going to take a holistic plan. For example, there's some communities that are in crises right now, and those need to be identified and with the difference as additional supports, particularly over the first five years when most of the compensation will be rolling out. The other thing that's needed is we need surge capacity in the communities for mental wellness programs, for addictions programs, and those types of supports, so that when the compensation comes out and there may be additional requirements for those services, that they're funded and they're available to do so. The other thing that we need to do is make sure those supports are available before the compensation goes. The residential school survivors are very clear about that, before, during, and after the compensation, because that is can be very difficult. Uh, one of the positive changes for this compensation is it doesn't involve interviews. You might have remembered that for residential school survivors, they had to go through almost like a cross-examination on their experiences to get compensation. The goal here is to actually not have interviews, particularly because a lot of these claimants are going to be, are still children. So we can't put them through that. So it has to be based on objective factors, and that's what the goal is. Yeah, I, I remember uh, speaking to some residential school survivors in Labrador who had to almost rank the, they were almost rated, the level of abuse and trauma they suffered to determine the settlement, which is a, a tough process to go through. But, but a, a, as you mentioned right off the top, uh, you want to make sure the discrimination ends. There is $20 billion as part of this for long-term reform of the on-reserve child welfare system and family services. Uh, so I, I'm wondering what you hope comes from that, but also I sense you think there are bigger issues even beyond those systemic changes. There is. I mean, when we look at the reasons why First Nations children are going into care at 17.2 times more the rate, it's this lack of prevention services, and we've made some progress there. But it's uh, things like lack of housing, lack of water, um, uh, the trauma from residential schools, and that results in addictions and other things. And so we need to get at those root problems and end the inequalities in those root programs by the federal government. That's going to be key. And uh, we're also having some compliance issues with the ongoing orders with the tribunal. In fact, we just did submissions this last week raising concerns about Canada's implementation of the Child and Family Services and of Jordan's principle. These are with existing orders. So, um, you know, the effort needs to continue because what the survivors said to a person yesterday as they were um, making their representations is that they came forward and told their truth so that this generation of kids doesn't have to go through it. And unfortunately, it's still happening. So we all collectively need to keep our eye on Canada and demand that they stop this discrimination. It's not in the public interest. It's certainly not in the children's interest to allow the harms to continue. I, I, I know it's not done, but today does mark progress. I, I mean, do you sense you have a willing partner right now and that there is a desire to, to move to where you say the country needs to go? Um, I hope so. I mean, uh, this has been, uh, as you say, this has been going on for 16 and a half years. And uh, they, we, this has been an important settlement. The government consented to the settlement. So that's a positive step. Um, but they're still out of compliance with the other orders. So uh, we need to make sure that uh, this isn't just a, a page turner for the government, that we keep our eye on the children today. Because when the public watches, things get better for kids. And when the public turns away, 
children continue to be harmed. Do you, do you think, uh, based on other issues that exist in, in the relationship here, do you think there are other potential lawsuits, uh, Cindy, uh, making their way into the system now uh, that the government... I think there could be, and they're all, to me, sad when it comes to compensation because it means that those kids were hurt, right? If we, uh, This is a case with one of the biggest public policy failures in Canadian history. 20 years ago, we had a, did a report with the federal government that flagged these inequalities and how they were harming kids and provided suggestions. The government chose not to implement those, David. And that's why they're paying the $23.4 billion and all these children and families were unnecessarily hurt. What we need to demand is that when there are serious harms on the books and there's solutions to remedy them, that the government, regardless of whatever political party, acts on that. Because in the end, it saves people money, and more importantly, it saves people's lives. Cindy Blackstock, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. For the federal government's perspective on the federal court's approval, we turn to the Minister of Indigenous Services, Patty Haidu. Minister, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. Nice to see you. Uh, I know you've only been at this a couple of years compared to the 15 years Cindy Blackstock has worked on this file, but how does it feel to finally have this more or less over the finish line? Well, you know, the approval of the federal court was the final piece of work to uh, uh, finalize the agreement in principle that, as you rightly point out, we started uh, two years ago with uh, Dr. Blackstock, but also with AFN, Mishum, and Trout. And um, I'm really pleased for the litigants in particular that this uh, the years of their advocacy is coming to a close on the issue of compensation. So uh, Cindy Blackstock was telling us they still need to figure out exactly how this money will be distributed in an agreement that will be filed with the court in the new year. And then they need to talk about safeguards uh, to help some of the people who will be getting this money who may be at a difficult point uh, in, in their life when, when it arrives. Does the federal government have any role in that or does this move beyond you at, at this point? It does move beyond the federal government at this point. So this uh, compensation will be delivered with the guidance of the Implementation Committee. That's what Dr. Blackstock is talking mm -hmm. about. And it is important that Indigenous people and indeed the Implementation Committee, through the voices of the many different people affected, will have the, the role of designing how that compensation unfolds. We've seen previous administrations um, not reflect the, uh, the need for, for example, trauma-informed approaches to to, uh, these kinds of um, compensation regimes, and I'm really thrilled that it will be designed and delivered uh, by Indigenous people for Indigenous people. One of the things uh, Cindy Blackstock said to us is she there is still discrimination, systemic discrimination against Indigenous people in this country, and uh, even with this done, she doesn't want this to be a page-turner, and that she wants a continued partner on moving ahead on some of these things so that there aren't more lawsuits like this. How do you make that happen? Well, that's the part two, or I would say the second half of the historic agreement in principle. You'll recall, recall when we signed that agreement two years ago, there was the compensation piece, and then there was the uh, reforming the system piece. And that work continues with Dr. Blackstock and um, the other parties. And it's exactly what she's talking about. It's, it's about the work to not only transform how we do business, but to make sure that it's sufficiently resourced so that uh, Indigenous families and children, First Nations families, 
families and children never have to experience that kind of discrimination in the child welfare system again. You know, but, uh, Cindy Blackstock maintains that the government is still discriminating against First Nations children and, and families, uh, despite this settlement. There, there's still non-compliance issues with some past orders uh, from the human rights uh, uh, bodies that, that have issued them in the past. Uh, how quickly can you get into compliance with those, you know, because she says that it is not happening? Well, what I would say is we've come a long way uh, in the last eight years in terms of equity work for First Nations people. And I can tell you that the gap continues to exist in many spaces, but we are working really closely with partners, not just on the federal reform of the system, but on the reform of child welfare across this country. Let's not forget the historic passing of Bill C-92, which uh, provides the tools and the fiscal resources to be able to restore the right to Indigenous peoples to care for their own children and families in uh, culturally appropriate ways. There have been at least 10 of these agreements signed across the country. I've been present at a number of them, and I can tell you that's the transformational work. It's in the self-determination. So how could, this goes to the, the committee, as you were saying, I guess the implementation committee, I believe was the phrase uh, you used. How, how quickly do you expect people will start to see the compensation for the discrimination they suffered as a result of this settlement? Well, I know that the Settlement uh, Implementation Committee wants that uh, compensation to flow quickly. I also know they want to make sure it is done safely. And so I think that they'll be uh, cognizant of the need for uh, really quick uh, work in that space. I know that families have spoken to me uh, and individuals have spoken to me about wanting to see this come to a conclusion. So I know urgency is at the top of everyone's mind. So this settlement, um, it's been settled before. Right. There have been various appeals and court orders. Uh, is there any other possibility of a legal challenge at this stage, Minister, that that could stop this? I know it's a federal court approval. Could this go to the Supreme Court or is this done? And it's just uh, the, the, the fine print of the implementation that needs to happen now. This is done, and this is the fine print. It's a great way to uh, describe where we're at. Um, nobody is appealing this decision. In fact, all the parties had uh, worked to arrive at this agreement, presented it to the CHRT, which then accepted the agreement, and then the federal government has given its stamp of approval. So now we're at the place where truly we'll start to see compensation flow uh, as uh, the Implementation Committee does its work and begins to um, assess how to do that safely for families and people. Minister of Indigenous Services, Patty Haidu, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much, David. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.